Welcome to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard every other Saturday morning during the summer months throughout the province. I'm your host and moderator, Wayne Nelson. And sitting right beside me in studio was Deputy Premier Mike Ellis. Now, uh, the Deputy Premier was going to be our fill-in host for the day, but uh, Premier Danielle Smith's schedule has freed up, and she now joins us by phone. Good morning, Premier Danielle Smith. Hey, Wayne. I just thought, you know, it's such a, there's been so much that's happened this week. I'm at a parade in Strathmore, the Strathmore Stampede this weekend. I'm so excited to be traveling the province, but I, I thought I'd spend a little bit of time with you so I can answer some questions because it's been a pretty busy week. All right. Do you want your minister to sit in for the show or are you going to have enough time to handle the whole thing? Well, why doesn't he sit in? Because if I, I mean, Mike Ellis is my deputy premier, so he, he's fully briefed on a lot of these topics, but you know, he's also doing such incredible work on helping to address the public safety crisis that we've got in uh, Edmonton and Calgary. And so if there's some some issues people want to raise around public safety, I would love to defer to him because he's got some great plans on, on how we're going to make sure that our communities stay safe. All right. Well, you know, I usually have my two or three questions off the top before we hit those phone and text lines. So uh, here's what's on my agenda today. The new medical test appointments starting today to help ease the backlog in Calgary. Compassionate intervention legislation for drug addiction. Uh, the province and three Alberta mayors have called on the feds for more affordable housing dollars. And the other one that's getting a lot of traction is the province issuing that seven-month pause on all approvals of new power plants. That's the wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, and hydroelectric generators. So uh, let's start off with health because that's the primary concern for most Albertans. As of today, the province making 400 new community testing appointments available at the South Health Campus and the Peter Lougheed Centre in Calgary. To help alleviate backlogs, more appointments are going to be made available at Foothills next week. Now, back in June, Premier Smith, you said your government would make, quote, other arrangements if Dynalife couldn't live up to its contractual obligations. So the move to Dynalife, uh, this was your predecessor, I, I believe, made that move, was supposed to result in better services at reduced cost. But obviously, if this band-aid move is needed doesn't that erase a good portion of any of the cost savings and if the results aren't there and the cost savings aren't there isn't it better to just admit the move to dine life was a failure and get back to what was working I can tell you we're, we're having ongoing discussions with Dynalife because uh, they're not, it's, it's very clear, and I made that point, that they're, they're not meeting the contractual obligations they had, which is why this past week we did get a, uh, the ability through negotiations with them to help uh, uh, go back to expanding the services with other service providers. So we are doing that with Alberta Precision Labs. Those additional appointments start today, and we'll do more. If uh, this doesn't help to stabilize things, which is what people want, if it doesn't help clear the backlogs, if it doesn't help get people the service that they need, we're prepared to do whatever it takes. So that's going to be an ongoing discussion, and I can tell you I'm disappointed um, because I, I think we'd all hoped that this would result in better service, and it hasn't. And when it doesn't, we've got to take action, and that's what we—that's what we did this week. And so, what about the cost factor? Is that uh, this, the uh, purported savings? Then is that being eroded by this uh, band-aid approach? There, there's, there's no question that uh, it's going to cost more money. But you know what? At this point, it's it's not a, a financial consideration for us. We've got to get those appointments done. We've got to make sure people are able to get the diagnosis that they need because diagnosis then leads to treatment. And that's just, to me, that's the number one priority is that we, we have to make sure that we put this extra expenditure out to stabilize the system and get people access to health care. That's, that's our number one goal here. All right. Another health or mental health topic before we hit to the phones. Uh, compassion 
compassionate intervention. Basically, this is forced treatment approach for addicts. It, it's drawn fire for several reasons. It, you know, if someone is ordered by the courts to enter treatment, that treatment, the, the bed or room where they have to go, has to be made available. But those who would who say that they would willingly enter a treatment program right now say that those beds or the, the rooms just aren't there. So how is this going to work? Why not just bring in more beds without the mandated treatment? And, and for that mandated treatment, people just don't like to be forced to do anything. So will any legislation on the topic address uh, charter right concerns? Let, let me, I'll, I'll also ask uh, Minister Ellis to, to weigh in on this, but I can tell you my, my perspective is this. We are building the beds. We're, we're four years ahead of any other province on taking a recovery-oriented system of care approach to treatment. We have our first recovery community, 75 beds, that we opened in Red Deer. We signed four agreements with Siksika, Kainai, Enoch, and and Sutina to build similar-sized facilities on their reserve lands. And we're also going to be building six more on top of that. So we are rolling out 11 recovery communities of about that same size over the next couple of years. So we are building new beds in order to be able to get treatment facilities. At the same time, we're also building treatment facilities in corrections. And so when somebody goes and serves time because they've committed a crime and they happen to have an addiction, there'll be a place for them to get the treatment that they need so that when they get out, they're clean and they're able to get on with uh, an independent life. So we are, we are uh, working overtime on building the additional beds needed for this program. All right. I'm, uh, I'm going to let uh, Minister Ellis uh, interject here if we could, uh, Premier Smith. You got it. So uh, thanks very much, uh, Wayne. Thank you, Premier. So uh, the Premier is uh, correct. We're building capacity within the system. Um, you know, let me just be clear. There, there was no real system of care, Wayne, uh, prior to the UCP coming into to effect in, in 2019. You had a lot of grants that were being handed out to people, great things being done by great people, but no system of care where somebody entered in the system, went on a journey of wellness and exited the system in a better place from which they started. But if we're talking specifically about compassionate care itself, this is not really, um, you know, this is something that we've already been doing, right? When it comes to uh, the Mental Health Act, when somebody poses a danger to themselves or, or others, certainly they can be taken to a medical facility in order to get treatment for their, their mental health issue. It is fair to say that if somebody is overdosing uh, five times a day, if somebody is overdosing multiple times in a week, uh, um, it is an illness that they have and we need to compassionately get them the treatment that they need. Uh, but make no mistake, we are, uh, as the Premier indicated, we are so far ahead of every other jurisdiction in North America right now. It's, it's uh, be honest with you, we have other jurisdictions that are trying to just essentially copy and paste what we're doing. Capacity is an issue. We're recognizing it. That's why we have the 10,000 spaces, the 11 uh, world-class therapeutic communities that are under construction, and we're continuing to do even more. All right. It's, uh, I think both of you have, have addressed that uh, without getting, we, we could spend an hour or more yeah. on that show, but I, I do have a full uh, board of phone calls. So I want to address uh, Don in Edmonton is calling in because I think that uh, dovetails nicely with what you both uh, said. So Don, go ahead. You have a uh, homelessness health question. Go ahead. Yes, I do. Uh, hi, Daniel, Premier Smith, uh, Mike Ellis. Um, the thing I found, because I used to help homeless people all the time, is it's the laws that you have in the province and the bylaws that the city has that create homelessness. I've seen the department in Edmonton kick people out on the street at minus 30, minus 40 with nowhere to go and take away their home, which is their vehicle, because that's usually their last resort. And not all of them were, not, not all of them were substance abuse users either. Um, they, uh, <clears throat> 
like a lot of them just the medical conditions, whatever the case was, you know, family problems, whatever the case, they're living in their vehicle, and then all of a sudden their vehicle gets towed to the impound yard or they miss a payment, uh, support payment, and all of a sudden they lose their three jobs and, and end up being a shoplifter for four years. It, it's, <clears throat> the problem is, is it's got to be a more compassionate approach to people when before and catch them before they fall, not after they fall and kick them out down to the street and say, oh, now we got to help them out. So anyway, that's... That's my comment and question. You gotta you gotta catch them before they hit the bottom. There's got to be some kind of program in place that catches people. Before, they're already know that they're down and they're out. And they've lost their house. They've lost everything. And usually all they have left is their vehicle or their couch surfing at somebody's place. And and I find that the rules that we have just make it absolutely worse. So there you go. And then I don't know if I'm allowed to continue. What, one, one, make answer. it make it quick, Don. We're coming up to a commercial break here. Okay, um, Canada. Like the United States spends more on health care than any other country in the world, and they rank 46. We rank like 40, 38 or 43. What we have to do is address the problem at the beginning, not the end. And we have to look past the College of Physicians and Surgeons because they're stuck in their little ruts and they don't know anything about nutrition, health, and environment and anything. We have to bring a team in that can address the environmental issues that are causing the health problems in the first place. All right. Anyway, there we go. Thanks, Thank Don. You. Let's- you know, Wayne, let me deal with the health issues, and I'll throw over to, to, to Mike to deal with the, the, the homeless issues that he raised, that Don raised. On the issue of health care, we're at the beginning of a transformation in our health care system. This is why we've been talking about team delivery on primary care, because when you have team delivery, you can bring in the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the LPN, the dietitian, the physiotherapist, and you can start addressing things from a holistic point of view and a preventive point of view. So we have a contract with the Alberta Medical Association. I just met this past week with the nurse practitioners that's where we're going on primary care so totally agree with Don on that and then the other part is that we've got to get better usage of our hospitals in Alberta Health Services I think they've got 106 facilities and so we need to be able to create a system where each hospital is able to identify surgeries and other procedures that they can do in hospital and get paid on the basis of the activity that they perform at each hospital so that we can use them to full service. So that's the model that we're moving forward towards as well, so that we get both systems, primary care and our hospital services, uh, uh, working efficiently, all of which will be done without anyone paying out of pocket to access needed hospital services or doctor's care. That That's what we're... we're we're gearing up for. Mike, did you want to take the homeless question? Yeah, great. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Don. Thanks, Premier. Uh, look, education, prevention, intervention, those are uh, three critical uh, factors. So, Don, I guess I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, certainly, there are some great organizations that are dealing with those uh, three topics regarding education, prevention, and intervention. Uh, homelessness, homelessness itself is obviously a very complex issue. That doesn't mean that it's something that uh, cannot and, and should not be addressed. Of course, it is. Unfortunately, uh, primarily most uh, people that are homeless uh, are um, uh, affected through uh, severe mental health and addictions issues. And that is part of the approach that we're taking and the system that we're creating is to address uh, address all of that. But uh, thanks, Don. Once all right. Taken. We're going to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Deputy Premier Mike Ellis and Premier Danielle Smith and more of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier.
If you're just joining us today, you are indeed listening to Your Province, Your Premier, heard every other Saturday morning during the summer months. For listeners throughout Alberta, in Edmonton on 630 Chad, right here in Calgary on QR Calgary. And today it's a special for you. We've got Deputy Premier Mike Ellis in studio and Premier Danielle Smith on the phone. So uh, if you got some calls, you got some texts, send them to us. Uh, please keep them as short as possible. We've got a full board right now. Uh, first question, I'm going to go to Laura in Edmonton. She's been holding on longer than the show has been on the air this morning. Uh, Laura, go ahead. You're on with uh, both the Deputy Premier and the Premier. Oh, good morning. Um, I just wanted to talk about the ruling that came down uh, this week about uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw and uh, the whole COVID mandate scenario. Um, and in a way, the ruling was uh, that uh, Dr. Hinshaw was uh, deemed uh, legal a lot of the mandates, et cetera, that she ruled on. Um, but what scares me is that um, the government did, in turn, uh, um, how should I put it, uh, they voted on whether to go ahead with these all, all the mandates. Uh, so the, that ruling was deemed illegal. But in other words, then it also says that um, the uh, medical officer of health has sole authority to go ahead and make these mandates on her own. So my question is, is what uh, parameters... All right, Laura, we, we lost you. Hello? I think where she was going is yeah. what, what do we plan to do in response to the, the yes. legal decision. Look, um, what I will say is that the we're in a position now for 30 days after that ruling where either side can appeal. And so I don't want to say anything that might impact the decision of anybody involved in making that appeal decision. What I have done is I have asked uh, Preston Manning and his task force to look at our Public Health Act and this section in particular, to see whether there are any legislative changes that he would propose on this or any other issues so that in the next pandemic, we have clear lines of authority, who's responsible, what's the decision-making process, how are the politicians involved, how is the legislature involved? So, so um, uh, Mr. Manning has delivered me a couple of interim reports with some suggestions. He's going to be delivering the final report to me, I believe, in October, and we'll see how this appeal process plays out, but there'll, uh, there'll be a package of, uh, of legislative changes that we'll be proposing as soon as that, as, as that report is delivered. Okay. Uh, so I, I can't say more on, than that, I'm afraid, just because it's, it is still before the court. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, text line. Uh, I don't know the person's name, but they're saying, can you talk about the small nuclear reactors progress, please? Well, I would I would love to. I mean, uh, the, the the good news is that there is uh, some rare common common ground with the federal government on this issue. I, I have spoken with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he is, he believes that uh, small modular nuclear is going to be one of the solutions in future for a lower emissions power grid. I've had a chance to talk to Premier Doug Ford. And of course, Ontario is at the forefront of developing the technology for small modular nuclear. They're, they're making um, contracts all around the world. And so I think that we'll uh, in future be able to, to do the same kind of thing. The issue that we face in Alberta is we've never had nuclear in our province before. And so we don't have a regulatory process in place to bring that on stream. So that's what we'll be working. I've got a working group with the federal government. 
They'll be putting 10 people forward. We'll be putting 10 people forward. And that's one of the issues that we'll be grappling with is how do we create a, a framework so that we can bring them on stream. I suspect what will happen is that you will either see a First Nations community or you will see one of the large industrial operations up in the oil sands be the first to uh, to pioneer some of the small modular nuclear. And then as people begin to get a familiarity, we'll have a, an opportunity to add more of it. But but uh, I think I think that we're, we're beginning to get to some consensus on that. All right. Uh, Wendy is phoning in from Edmonton. Uh, go ahead, Wendy. You're on with uh, Premier Danielle Smith and Deputy Premier Mike Ellis. Uh, good morning. Uh, I would like to, first of all, make a comment, and then I have a question. Um, I work in, uh, I work with people with uh, severe addictions and mental health issues that are either coming out of jail or have been given the opportunity to try to change their ways in the community. One issue that we have is trying to get people into treatment preventatively before they really get uh, excessively underneath the, the addiction and we send them we you know on a common basis send them uh, to a place called access 24 7 their mandate and our mandate are completely different access 24 7 as Alberta Health Services is voluntary so when we send somebody there uh, to get some psychoeducational assistance or some one-on-one -on -one counseling if they indicate they're not interested in assistance uh, file is closed so we're kind of at a bit of a loss there so I'm just uh, my comment is if you are going to bring in compassionate treatment please take into account that there are different mandates in different ministries and they all need to align so that we can assist the public my question is um, with regards to the $600 payment that was given out to uh, Albertans. And I'm wondering why people who are single, people who have families and don't earn $180,000 a year, I wish, and have kids that are over the age of 18 were excluded from receiving that $600. Let me answer the, the, the last question first. The, um, we gave broad-based relief to everybody on, by, by getting rid of the fuel tax and suspending it, not only for six months, but we've done that for the rest of the year. And it's had a, a, a major effect. We've seen that in Alberta, we have the lowest inflation rate of any province in the country, which means the cost of everything is lower than the rest of the country. And so that was how we wanted to make sure everybody was able to benefit from that decision. We had low-income transit passes that were available we did food bank support we did rebates for electricity and those were every, policies for everybody what we also found though is that when you're a fixed income senior or you have uh, fa family members and you're trying to feed those extra mouths they just have extra costs associated with that and so we wanted to make sure that we were able to target our relief for additional support to those most uh, most uh, most vulnerable as well as to those who are facing those additional cost pressures so that was the the rationale behind it and we'll be prepared to do more on affordability if we need to. It's part of the reason when the first decision we made after the election was to extend the fuel tax reprieve. That's going to, to make a difference for every single person. The On the issue of uh, AHS having different policies, excellent point. I just empowered Dan Williams, who is our mental health and addictions minister, to begin the process of providing oversight to Alberta Health Services Mental Health so that we can uh, ensure that, that uh, those are in sync and that, we're, and that it's seamless. So that is the, the process that we are just beginning. And Mike, I don't know if you have more that you want to say on that. 
Well, I, I think that what I would say is, uh, in regards to the therapeutic living uh, units, um, look, when I, when I was the only law enforcement officer ever part of the Alberta Secretary for Action on Homelessness, you know, I had identified that, you know, essentially the government was releasing people from correctional facilities, essentially, here's your LRT ticket, and then in a pathway to homelessness, right? So it's, it becomes a recidivism issue. And, uh, you know, when I was uh, in the position, obviously, to become the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, and obviously the, now the Minister uh, of Public Safety, uh, one of the things I created are these therapeutic living units so that you do not have to sit in a correctional facility and, you know, um, you know uh, suffer with your addiction, that you can actually get treatment on your, your addiction issue, your mental health issue, so that, again, you can leave the system in a better place from which you started. I can tell you that some people will be able... The first one is opened up in, in Red Deer, it just opened up. Uh, we haven't got any stats yet, but an- anecdotally, some of the things that I have heard are from the um, uh, not only the folks that that, uh, that are inmates there that are excited that they're going to be able to get treatment for their addiction or their mental health issue, but also uh, from the people that work in those facilities. And those people have indicated that wow, now you know this is this is something I'm really actually making a difference in somebody's life right now. So. Early, early uh, show, or indications are, are showing that this is going to be successful. Again, nothing that I've seen anywhere else in North America. What about Wendy's uh, comment about the people going to this access 24-7 and saying, no, they don't want treatment, and away they go? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, this now we're going back into the compassionate care and yeah. stuff like that, right? So, um, you know, uh, the point's taken uh, by Wendy. I think that, uh, you know, I, I know with some of staff that are in the room and people that are listening right now, we'll take that back as, as feedback as we continue to create this legislation. Okay, Murray has let me, a... Let, let me add to that, uh, Wayne, is, is it, and if you talk to somebody who's a recovering addict, as we did during the campaign, we had two young girls who came forward because we do have... Uh, treatment orders for those under the age of 17. Parents have the ability to uh, apprehend their kids and get them into a treatment program. And and those young kids, I mean, uh, talk about wisdom. They said the only thing you care about when you're in the throes of an addiction is getting your next fix. You don't have free agency. You don't have mental capacity to think about consequences. And they actually asked us, you know, why is this only available? to young people, why wouldn't it be available to anyone who cares about their loved one? Um, and I, I think that's what we're going to, to be looking at. It's going to be done properly. It's going to be a judicial order. There'll be a, there'll be a process that you have to go through in order to, uh, to, uh, to be ordered into treatment. And it really will be a last resort. We want people to choose treatment if they will, but we, we're just not going to sit back and watch people slowly kill themselves. Okay. Murray is calling in from Edmonton, uh, policing towards homelessness. Go ahead, Murray. Uh, you're on with the Premier and Deputy Premier. Good morning, Mike. My question is for you. I uh, work six nights a week downtown Edmonton beside the mustard seed, right in the heart of all the drug action. And I talk a lot, I ask questions, and I learn. So what I'm noticing is police aren't picking up the individuals on their warrants. They come up, you have warrants, and they make you sign another PTA to appear. What's up with that? And secondly, last night I actually watched a police officer in Edmonton give back the individual his narcotics what's up with that sir well that's a great question what is up with that i mean that's certainly not uh not something that i uh certainly would have done when i was on the streets policing in in calgary certainly uh these are illegal substances and uh you know i'm not saying you have to charge somebody with uh with with uh, possession but certainly they should be put in for for destruction um you know i would say i would say look i mean 
the, the supervised consumption sites, as an example that we have in the, the Edmonton area, right? Um, there's, 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 there's a reason for them. It is part of the continuum of care. It's not the answer to a very, very complex problem, but it, it is there and it's there for a reason. It doesn't mean that there's a perimeter around the supervised consumption site. So when that law enforcement officer engages with that individual, really, he should be giving that person a, a choice. The choice is you can go into the supervised consumption site to use uh, and make sure that you're safe and we have all the necessary resources there to get people the help that they need, or... You know, those drugs, which are illegal to be used, we're not going to tolerate uh, open drug use in in Alberta. Uh, They need to be put in for lawful destruction. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's where we're at. All right. uh, Further to that, that, though, let me add to that, Wayne. I've given um, Minister Ellis, as well as uh, Justice Minister Mickey Amory, the latitude to do what it takes to to give uh, our frontline officers the, the reinforcement that it, it that we're that we're we're just not going to continue seeing this revolving door of uh, of people coming into jail and then being released on, or coming in being being apprehended and then being back on the street before the paperwork's even done. So so Minister Ellis and uh, Minister Amory are both looking at ways in in which we can address that. I'm working federally at the at the federal level with my counterparts to make sure that we're keeping people behind bars when uh, when they when, when they commit a serious offense so that we can start having some kind of disruption. I, I think what's happened, unfortunately, is that our, our frontline officers keep on arresting and rearresting the same guys, and they're getting frustrated that there there isn't a, an opportunity to hold them. So we're, we're looking at all sorts of ways that we can that we can go on to address that. And, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Minister Ellis and, and Minister Amory will have more to say on that. Soon. And further to that point, uh, text message in from the 630 Ched line, why is the province being reactive and not proactive. They need to get tough on the drug dealers who are poisoning our people. I'll take that one, Premier, if you don't mind. We are getting tough on the drug dealers, and that's why we put an enormous amount of money uh, into uh, our Alberta law enforcement response team. Uh, we've created gang suppression teams in both Calgary and Edmonton. Um, you know, we've, we've, you know, I've, you know, I put the sheriffs, uh, in, obviously in conjunction with uh, Chief uh, Sheikh, uh, on the streets of both Calgary and Edmonton. Calgary, of course, is doing their review. But this is about uh, uh, um, um, being tough on, on the gang. Look, look these, these drug dealers, they prey on the vulnerable people. And this is, and this is not going to be tolerated in this province. And this is one of the things that we're doing. This is why I've put an enormous amount of resources into all of our law enforcement community with spe- specific um, you know, asks to sit there and say, make sure you're protecting vulnerable people and the people that are being targeted all right, uh, Chris is texting in from Edmonton, says, Mr. Ellis, how many people with violent pasts or previous breaches of conditions are out on bail? Uh, he says specifically in Edmonton, but hey, what about the whole province? Well, I don't, I don't have the specific numbers uh, on that, but that's, uh, you know, that opens up the larger issue of, of kind of where we're at today. Uh, this has to do with a bill called Bill C-75, which was put forward by the, the federal government, which uh, essentially caused the release of uh, violent repeat criminal offenders, uh, they have a bill that uh, is uh, currently out right now called Bill C-48, which is uh, supposed to be putting a reverse onus on some of the more uh, violent uh, offenses uh, in, in, uh, in Canada. However, um, I have, um, I've made a call, uh, quite frankly, uh, very public, saying that uh, Parliament should, should resume in order to protect uh, uh, Canadians and get Bill C-48 passed. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, violent repeat criminal offenders, that is who's being released on our streets. This is not uh, any different in Edmonton and Calgary 
and the rest of Canada. And that's why all of us justice ministers, all of us public safety ministers, were united on this issue, pushing back against the federal government, saying that you, your policies, that Bill C-75 has made Canada less safe. Not just Alberta, Canada has become less safe because of the federal liberal government. All right, Justin is can calling I, in. I, can no, I just, no, wait, let me add on. I, I, I I've got to get to the phone lines, Premier. I just, I just, I know, I know, I just want, this is important because I think Mike needs to also just, I, I asked him to look into having a special prosecutor's unit to deal with this precise issue. Mike, can you just elaborate on what you're looking at there? Yeah, uh, we're working with Minister Amory on that, but but look, we're 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 ultimately going to have uh, we'll call it uh, zones around Calgary and Edmonton, which are really your your two areas that have the the highest uh, propensity to have uh, violent crime, we'll say, and we're going to make sure that we have dedicated prosecutors that are going to uh, actually do the bail hearings. So it will not become the let's make a deal uh, sort of game that has been occurring right now in the court system. So, you know, for any of you defense attorneys who are listening right now, make sure you sharpen your pencils and are prepared to do bail hearings. All right. right Okay, now we're going to go to uh, Justin uh, calling in from Edmonton. Uh, Go ahead, Justin, and uh, please uh, keep it as short as possible. Uh, Good morning, Premier Smith and uh, Deputy Premier Alice. Good morning. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, my question is about the recent decision to pause all the new construction, all new approvals of commercial solar. So you rightfully go after the federal government for the net zero target by 2035. And for that reason, I'm also against the government taking winners and losers and irred- and interfering in the free market. And for that reason, I do not support taking existing power, no matter what it is, offline. At the same time, the power needs of our province are going to continue to grow, and we do have tens of billions of dollars in in solar that wants that want to be constructed. And and quite frankly, solar it can compete without subsidies. So why is it not hypocritical for you to go after the federal government for the net zero mandate, but also your, you yourself meddle in the free market and take winners and losers by causing all the new all new approvals of commercial solar projects? Well, let me let me uh, answer Justin's question a few ways. Number one. The Alberta Utilities Commission, the Alberta Electric System Operator, and the Rural Municipalities Association all asked us for a pause. So when I hear all of my municipal leaders and my two principal regulators saying we got a problem, I have to listen to that. It would be irresponsible of me to ignore that. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a few major problems that we have right now. I, I don't know if people know this. We have 23,000 megawatts of proposed application for wind and solar. 23,000. But here's the problem. Every time you bring wind and solar on the grid, you have to have a backup. Uh, What we have is natural gas peaker plants. So when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you bring on natural gas to cover the gap. The federal government doesn't want us to add any new natural gas to the grid. So I've told them, how can I bring on additional wind and solar if I'm not able to secure the reliability of my power grid by being able to bring on natural gas peaker plants? That's the big, that's at the heart of the problem. No one is proposing any new natural gas plants because the federal government has created so much uncertainty in the market. That's what we've got to figure out. That's one part. The other part is the reclamation costs. And we have begun to deal with that on the oil and gas side. We're demanding that energy companies spend uh, to pay down 3% of their liability and reclaim their uh, existing sites. But when you look at a, at a wind installation, maybe it has 50 turbines. It's a huge amount of additional steel, fiberglass, massive amount of concrete construction. What happens when that gets to its end of life? 
who pays for that to be removed? We don't have a system in place. So that's that the, but that's the point that we're at. That's the point that we're at right now, Premier Smith. But nobody is still halting any future oil and gas developments, are they? Well, I can tell you. I, I but when you bring in oil and gas development, you've got stable baseline development. When you bring a natural gas plant onto the grid, it can work 100% of the time. When I, I live in, I, I represent Brooks Medicine Hat. I spent seven months pa- driving past a solar farm that had well, was covered with ice and snow and not producing a single iota of power. And so I have to accept that as a reality. When we were in the in the winter, we had several times where the grid almost failed because we didn't have enough power and you can't call up wind and solar on demand. We had uh, times where we, even though we have 5,000 megawatts of installed wind and solar, there were two days in the winter where the, it was producing less than 100 megawatts of power. So I always have to make sure that when wind and solar, which are intermittent and unreliable, when they when we bring new on, we have to make sure that we have a backup. Otherwise, we're, we're going to end up with grid instability and we just can't have that. We also know what happens when you have tight power it ends up uh, jacking up supplies. We are seeing the highest prices right now for uh, for electricity because we took reliable coal off stream, paid billions of dollars to do it. We're still paying $200 million a year to compensate those coal companies for their stranded assets, and we don't have enough new baseline power coming on. That's a problem, and I, I know it's frustrating for people, uh, but, I, but I have to begin the process of making sure that we're responsibly developing wind and solar, and we're making sure that reliability and affordability are the number one things that we're able to deliver in our power grid. All right, back to the phones. Uh, Rory has been holding on for, uh, oh boy, half the show. Uh, Rory calling in from Edmonton with an Alberta Sheriff's question. Go ahead, Rory. Yeah, yeah you guys are talking about expanding Alberta Sheriff's and that. I've talked to a couple of them, and I do security guard work at bars and coffee shops in the north end uh, where they're teaming up with uh, Edmonton police, you know, in different districts, uh, to supplementing the downtown and that. But I was wondering, asking with Mike and Danielle, especially Mike with his experience uh, as a cop, would be interested in uh, knowing that they were a couple of them were talking about having Alberta sheriffs in schools to bring back the in-school police resource officer, and so, because they had shortages of Edmonton police officers in some of the schools, and then it's sort of been cancelled by the public school board and the Catholic school board in many of the schools. I would think that would be a good idea to supplement and have both Edmonton police and Alberta sheriffs either in tandem or separately to fill in when there's shortages and then bring it back into the schools. If you get to teach kids to respect the police of all different branches while they're younger, then I think they're more likely to not use drugs and be uh, criminals in the future. I just wonder if you guys think about that. Yeah, I'll... Go ahead, Mike. I'll I'll take that. Look, look, um... (laughs) I got a lot to say here, Wayne, on this. <laughs> okay, you got two minutes. Yeah, okay, <laughs> sorry. Look, the decision to remove law enforcement um, from the schools, I, I, I don't agree with that decision. Um, you know, I learned a lot from, from one of my friends and mentors, uh, Rick Hansen, who was the chief of police here in Calgary. And one of the things that, you know, he would say is that, look, if you don't, at the, at the young person's age, especially in elementary school and junior high schools, when the... Police are not there to mentor those kids. Guess who is? The gang member. That's who's going to be there. And then you start to see those kids go down a very, very dangerous path. You know, one of the things that we've created here is something I built upon, which was created by Rick Hansen, which is called the Integrated School Support Program. So the ISSP, which is uh, what, it's, what it's called, was started here in Calgary. It took the lowest socioeconomic uh, schools in Calgary and it provided all the resources, not just for the kids, but the family, um, to make sure that they had a school after, or sorry, a food at lunchtime, after school care, 
uh, mental health supports, uh, um, physical supports, anything that that child or the family needs was there, and it was centered around the police, quite frankly. So we've expanded that quite considerably. Uh, certainly when I was the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, I know that uh, Premier uh, Smith has put that in the mandate letter for uh, Minister Williams to continue to expand that program because if we do not have those police officers there providing that, that guidance, that support, that mentorship to those kids, those families, then I'm going to tell you again, the gang member will be there. And I right. don't want that to happen. One quick question from the text line before we hit the break, and this will be to you, uh, Minister Ellis. We need dedicated EPS on the LRT like it used to be. Please advise. So I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, I've been saying this for a long time now, for probably darn near uh, a year, that officer presence matters. And right now, because of Bill C-75, again, we have the violent repeat criminal offenders. And specifically, if we're talking about Edmonton, uh, we, we know that there was that, um, uh, that person from Rwanda that was uh, murdered on, on the, the LRT. Uh, we know we have uh, a person visiting from Chile that was actually uh, assaulted quite bad, again, on the LRT. So uh, until the federal government uh, does something to address Bill C-75, and uh, then really we have to protect our citizens of both Calgary and Edmonton, and officer presence is going to make the difference. And I'll say that for Calgary and Edmonton. If it means putting a, a police officer on the LRT platforms, if it means putting them on the trains, if that's what we have to do, then the Premier Smith and I have been very clear, we'll do whatever it takes. All right, we have to take a break. Uh, I'm Wayne Nelson with the Deputy Premier Mike Ellis and Premier Danielle Smith. We'll be back to wrap things up on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier, your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith and or Deputy Premier Mike Ellis one-on-one -on -one today. If you got a specific question you'd like them to answer, you know the numbers, and let's get right to those phone lines. We're going to start with Harry in Edmonton. Harry has been uh, got a, well, been holding on for like 45 minutes, Harry, so uh, it's got to be an important question from you. Go ahead. Well, it, it is. Uh Okay, uh, it's, uh, good morning, uh, both Mike and uh, Danielle. Um, the question is, what are we going to do with the electric cars? I know that British Columbia has a system in place where, you know, uh, they uh, take a lot of uh, electricity off the grid, and uh, they don't pay nothing for road maintenance like our conventional vehicles. When we go to the pump, we pay it immediately. So, uh, have you a program or, or something? I know this was addressed by a caller a few months ago, and I'm going to, you know, uh, reopen the doors again to this and uh, see what you think of that. And then my second question is quickly, is the Matrimonial Act has to be revamped because too many uh, people are taking advantage of it or just knowing the system knowing what uh, they can do, and then reap the rewards is like having a real job. Okay, so, uh, and uh, uh, those are the two questions I, I wish you can, uh, if you can tell me who your minister for uh, that uh, matrimonial act is. 
Okay, well, well uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, Premier I Smith. Think that, that would be our justice minister, but but I would say that it's pretty well established in law that people have, I think, what is called dower rights, so that when you get married, anything accumulated during the course of the marriage is considered joint assets. And if one person um, is working out of the home, there is a pretty established practice that if the marriage breaks down, they have to be supported. So I, I, I'm, it's, I'm unlikely to expect that our justice minister would revisit that, but um, you can you can talk with him about what your specific concerns are if I've, if I've uh, mis- if I'm misunderstanding what you're asking for but um, on the other question of electric vehicles I look I drove a hybrid car uh, through the course of the campaign so that I could see what our charging station infrastructure was like across the province and it's terrible quite frankly so we need to figure out a way to get an appropriate amount of charging stations in the right place knowing that it takes hours to be able to get a, a proper charge it's probably having it at hotels or other kind of in-service seating establishments is probably the place that we've got to do that so that's one part that we have to address i am far more enthusiastic about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles if you want the truth i think i mentioned on the last show that I drove one, Edmonton International Airport has managed to secure a hundred Toyota Mirai. We're going to try to to purchase a couple of them from Edmonton International Airport, and they're pretty zippy. Uh, they they work pretty well. They're in kind of the the range that is what normal cars are in the range for. The fill-up is kind of in the range of what a normal fill-up would be. And I think in our environment, with so many cities so far apart, with our our long-haul vehicles looking at developing dual-fuel engines, I, I have a lot more enthusiasm for for hydrogen rather than trying to to load up the power grid okay um we're running out of time we still got a full slate to boy i tell you guys are popular today uh we're going to go with peter in edmonton uh go ahead peter you got an interesting question yes good morning to everyone um my question is okay we about homelessness now we have every week we seem to hear all oh, the billion dollars for homelessness hundred million five where is this money going because obviously it's not working my the point is though is you you could just look this up Uh, you can get a shipping container that's fully equipped to be an apartment bathroom shower everything why can't we get some land put say a hundred of them on the land away from the city so the people can you know get off drugs or mental problems but the doctors are all in one area everybody can be seen when they need to be seen not wait three weeks five months and then it's too late they either commit a crime or are in jail or they're dead of an overdose so you've got so- a complicated question there peter i'm i'm hearing uh shipping container housing which is uh, probably a a great idea but then well, the uh, segregation million. of those people into a separate area. Anyways, I will let the uh, the premier okay. and deputy premier take because that. For, Peter, for Peter just invented. Peter just invented our recovery communities. Yeah. That's exactly what our recovery communities are for. And I'll describe the one that we have up and running right now, receiving patients in Red, in in Red Deer. It's seventy five beds, fifty on the male side, twenty five on the female side, separate kitchen. People do intensive therapy in the morning and chores in the afternoon or vice versa. They take care of the property. They learn how to cook. They learn how to shop. They learn how to take care of themselves. They learn how to do basic skills and they get clean and they get reconnected to their family, to their community. So whether they need to be there a month or six months or one year, by the time they are released, they're going to have wraparound supports 
so that they can live independently in a home, take care of themselves, and get back on to independent life. That's the entire model of the recovery-oriented system of care. That is the heart of it. We've got one of those communities built. We've got 11 coming. And that is why it's, it's so important that we continue to invest in that. Mike, do you want to add more to it? Because you were, you were essential in developing this strategy. Yeah, I, uh, I, I am one of the architects behind the recovery-oriented system of care. And, and it, yes, Premier, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, somebody is going to enter in the system. They're going to get treated for their severe mental health and addictions issue. Uh, they're also going to learn um, um, uh, skills uh, to get a job, uh, and then they're going to exit the system with a, um, um, uh, not only a job, but also with a place to live. Um, if I can just go a little further, people always want to talk about housing first. And, and I can tell you that as somebody who was part of the, law, uh, the, um, the uh, Alberta Secretary for Action and Homelessness, I bought into housing first. It sounded really great. But the reality is this. If you do not deal with somebody's severe mental health and addictions issue, then giving them, home, uh, giving them a home before you deal with that actually is not doing them any good. It's actually doing them more harm than good. If you look at housing first policies, you only have to look all the way from Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and, and Vancouver. Those are all housing first policies that have pretty much destroyed the entire West Coast of North America. All right. And uh, further to that, uh, with regards to housing. Now, this gets away from the addiction aspect of things or the homelessness aspect of things. Uh, just recently, the province and the mayors of Calgary and Edmonton uh, approached the federal government to allocate more uh, dollars for affordable housing. Uh, Premier Smith, we've got really one minute if you could uh, address that. I can tell you, everything we've asked for from Ottawa is treat us fairly. If you're going to be giving um, cost-sharing agreements with the provinces, do it on a per capita basis so that everybody is treated the same. And they didn't do that. They gave us 3% of the allocation that they're putting towards um, towards uh, building affordable housing. And that's the reason why the mayor of, of Calgary, Jody Gondek, mayor of Edmonton, Amarjeet Sohi, and Jason Nixon wrote a joint letter saying that, that it's outrageous. We, we continue to have the highest level of people moving to Alberta. We are working with our municipalities so that they can expand their uh, ability to grow out our, our affordable housing stock. And this isn't helpful to, uh, to, 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 to shortchange the, the very desperate need that we have in Calgary and Edmonton. So that's the reason why the three of them wrote that last week. All right. Premier Smith, uh, Minister Ellis, thanks for joining us uh, today on uh, Your Province, Your Premier. Been a Thanks, pleasure. Wayne. Thanks very much, Wayne. All right, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, August 19th at this same time. I'm Wayne Nelson. You have been listening to Your Province, Your Premier.